We're in Romans chapter 8. I'll go ahead and tell you, this was a little bit difficult sermon to put together. Um, we're going to look at a lot of scripture in order to unfold this concept. I want to make sure that we know where, we're, where we've been and understand that and where we're going, and most importantly, where Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going. I want to say that maybe I had about 25 to 30 scripture passages we were going to look at on Thursday. Now, don't worry, I spared you. So, yeah, we're doing 40 now. No. It whittled it down, but it's hard to, to capture a concept like when it says firstborn. Because it's not just simple cut and dry. There's a lot behind it, and there's a lot that God means to intend, sorry, intends to communicate to us in using that. So the first thing that I want to do here is look at Romans 8. Romans 8 is about the glorification of the believer. And how if the believer endures suffering for Christ's sake, there will be an even greater realm of glory for them. You say, well, I thought all believers are glorified. They are. But God also gives you the opportunity to dictate the level of glorification. Suffering here produces even greater glory in heaven. Will all believers be there? Absolutely. Will all believers be in the kingdom? Absolutely. But there will be some who are in the kingdom, experiencing bliss, grateful to God that they are there. And there are some, because of their response to the word of God and choosing to trust the word of God in the midst of everything that the sinful generation tries to throw at you, will actually be esteemed with greater glory. And here's the reason why. Because God is good and God is a giver. He just loves to give. He loves to bless his kids. Don't you love it when your kids are obedient? Do you? Yes. In fact, I saw some smiles on some mother's faces. You even have your masks on. I still saw it. Nothing like seeing the edges of those masks perk up. Because you're like, yes, when my kid listens, it's amazing. God feels the same way. His heart is warmed by that. So in chapter 8, we see an interesting truth starting in verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For all things to be working for good in the midst of suffering, there must be a love for God. And love is most evidenced by the believer in obedience. Does every believer love God? No, they should but not all do. Love takes time. Love takes information. Love takes intimacy. Love takes a repeated occasion for trust to build. Love takes time. It takes effort. And God, in every page of Scripture, wants to constantly put forward, you can trust me, I love you. You can trust me, I love you. Over and over and over again. And he invites us, and Jesus invites us to get into that love relationship with him. Some of you here this morning may not be in a love relationship with Jesus. I'm not going to tell you that's okay, but I'm going to tell you I can understand it. 
But what I will say is it doesn't have to be that way. And there is no reason why you can't trust God or what he has in store for your life or the way that he would have you glorify him in the future. There is no better path than that. So God is going to orchestrate all things in our situation for good, for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And from the context of this passage, his purpose is that we would be recognized in the adoption of sons. This is when the world and our bodies will stop groaning and start rejoicing because the end has come. And God wants to bring us to a grand, great, and glorious end by giving us a massive inheritance. However, what that looks like is contingent upon whether or not we have been obedient. Whether or not we'll give up our way for God's way. So that being said, I don't want to hammer that to death. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew. And what does that mean? Those with whom he, were, he was acquainted with intimately previously. Those whom he had a prior knowledge, and not just a prior knowledge, I know that guy, I remember that person from way back when, but probably a first-hand knowledge in this situation because of the Greek words that are used. If you have questions about that, two sermons ago is when we covered that. But those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, we found something very interesting last week when we dealt with the word predestined. If you wouldn't mind, Mitch, pull up that slide. I'm sorry, PJ, pull up that slide real quick and let's see that. Because what we found was, is predestined, proritzo is the Greek word. It's used once in Acts for Jesus' crucifixion. It was a predestined event or a pre-appointed event. God appointed beforehand that Jesus must die. But in 1 Corinthians 2.7 and Ephesians 1.5 and verse 11, it all talks about the grand glorification of the believer. All of it points there. There is not one verse or passage in the Bible whatsoever, that says that God only predetermined for certain people to go to heaven and everybody else is helplessly lost with no chance of salvation. It's not in the Bible. You cannot find it. And I encourage you, search the scriptures. See if you can find one. Bring it to the table. Let's talk about it. But this is too long of a doctrine that has been spread throughout Christianity that is detracted from a good God who loves everyone and desires for everyone to be saved as the scriptures consistently and clearly teach. We can't buy into that. So here's the question. So what is predestined in Romans 8.29? If it's talking about Jesus' crucifixion and so far glorification, glorification, that's where we see all the evidence. What is it talking about in Romans 8.29? Let's read. 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And remember what we said. If somebody's been predestined, ask the question, what's the destination? How many people like to know where you're going before you get in the car? Yeah. Nobody gets this like, whatever. When you do that, it's because you're in college. Moving on. (laughs) See, I got some of your attention. That's good. So notice, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Now let me ask you a question. The idea of conforming, it means to take on the same likeness or to have a, have a parallel similarity to it. But when will you and I be conformed to the image of Christ completely? Well, when the rapture takes place. Also, what is known as our orification. 
What is God predestined for believers? Your glorification. He is going to see you through to the end, and he's actually set it up so it's going to be real nice, Clark. It's going to be real nice when you get there. In fact, it's going to be mind-blowing. And God has provided us with everything we need for that end to be a certainty. Period. Now here's what he's saying. This entire chapter is talking about you can trust the Lord in suffering times. When you're going through hard times and nobody understands you and nobody wants to talk to you and you're being shunned because of your stance for Christ. What this is saying is, is no, 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 no. There's actually people that God knew previously. And he actually brought them through and predestined their glorification. And he throughout their life to conform them to the image of Jesus Christ. For what reason? Look what it tells you at the end there. I can't even read what's going on here. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, God had set up the lives of Old Testament saints in such a way as to when they begin to walk with God, their lives are being changed not to be better people. We don't need a better Jeremy, trust me. We don't. As much as you wish for it, as much as I wish for it, Lord, I just wish I wouldn't mess up this way all the time. I can hear very clearly the Lord saying, that's just you. And that's why you need me. We're not looking for a better Jeremy. What we're looking for is Jesus formed in me and being exhibited through me. And how does that happen? By following whatever God wants for my life. Because that is his whittling work. And he is whittling every one of us into the image of Christ. And if you want to know whether or not he's whittling you, the question is, are you obeying him? If you're obeying him, he's whittling. If you're not obeying him, he stopped and took a tea break. It's just what happened. How do we get back into the whittling process to be conformed to the image of Christ? We know the word and we respond to the word. That's it. The Holy Spirit does all the work in our lives through us. It's not that we do better. It's not that we try harder. It's not that we get our act together. We have got to stop all that. Because all that is a self-sufficient hindrance to what God wants to do in us, which is to bring us all, conforming us to the image of Christ. Why? So that he will be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, so that he will be preeminent and him in me will preach to the world. The most dangerous person in the world is a Christian who knows God's word and is being conformed to the image of Jesus. People freak out about obedient believers. I'm not talking about crazy believers. I'm not talking about unbiblical believers. I'm talking about those who have had their face to the floor and their nose in the word. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about those who have the ability to love the unlovable because Christ is loving the unlovable through them. I'm talking about the ones that are sensitive to their sin, and so they're confessing it before the Lord. I'm talking about the ones who said, you know what, it doesn't matter what I want, it only matters what Jesus wants. Those people are dangerous. Why? 
because they don't care about the flesh. They don't care about the world. They don't care about the temptations of Satan. All they care about is pleasing the king who died for them. They're dangerous because the world can't figure them out. The world can't control them. The world can't handle them. And when you hold fast to the truth, you find that people get up in arms. Why is that? Because they can't control you anymore. They can't hold on to you anymore. They can't manipulate you anymore. And this is what it's talking about. Christian, if you want to know that suffering is worth it, and that if you will suffer with Christ, you will also be glorified with him because the sufferings of this present age are not worth being compared to the glory that will be revealed when he comes, when he shows us the culmination of our salvation. If you lose sight of that, know this. He's proven it time and time again in those that he was pre-acquainted with. And he predestined all of them to be conformed to the image of Christ so that their lives would preach to people around them. Now we have to figure out, biblically speaking, what this idea, this word of firstborn means. Before we do that, let's look at one last quote, just so that we're clear. If you wouldn't mind, PJ, bring up the Ironside quote, please. You will note that there is no reference in these four verses to heaven or hell, but to Christ-likeness eventually. That's what we've been predestined to. Whether or not you walk in that path is based on your response to the Word of God. You can either accept it or reject it. It's, it's up to you. That's the amazing thing about the Father. Father's not trying to control us. Our free will does not threaten Him. But what He does is He constantly offers us a better way that He has paved for us. So the idea is being predestined to Christ-likeness eventually. If you wouldn't mind, you got your pens out, you want to write this down, this is important. The word firstborn. Let's talk about what this means in the Greek. It is the word prototokos. And that's just fun to say. It's used 158 times in the Old Testament. The first definition is it literally pertaining to the birth order. Nathaniel is my firstborn, my firstborn son in order. So that's why I would, I would say, this is my firstborn. Plain, right? Very easy. The second one is pertaining to having a special status associated with the firstborn. In other words, the first one deals with order. The second one deals with right. Which one has the rights? Which one has the influence or the exercise of power? Which one is able to lay claim to certain privileges that other children in the same line do not receive? Here's an example of Christ as the firstborn of the new humanity, which is to be glorified as its exalted Lord is glorified. An example would be the fact that the first family comes through Adam. Adam didn't do a good job. Adam dropped the ball when it was handed to him. You guys like Dave Fields so much from Ethos 360? He uses that example. He talks about that it's like a football game, right? God handed off the ball. God's a quarterback. He handed it off. To Adam, Adam's a running back, he dropped it. Other team picked it up and started to score. You give it to Jesus, and Jesus is like a powerhouse that mows over everybody. That's the difference. Jesus doesn't drop the ball. See, he ain't that great. That's not as good of an illustration. I don't know why you guys like him so much. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> Just kidding. Next slide. I got to make sure you're still awake. It's pertaining to existing superior to all else of the same or related class. 
The firstborn can use it as a designation saying, this is the best, this is the cream of the crop. This is the one who gets to call the shots. Or like I would like to, to, to bring to it with, with uh, Colossians, preeminence, top dog, highest in rank. It's the best. So now we're going to do a concise, hello, concise. We're, I mean concise because I found a ton of scripture that I went through all week dealing with this situation. So let's start by turning to Genesis chapter 5. I want to see something very interesting. Genesis 5. Since the Bible is a progressive revelation, we will start towards the beginning and we will work our way through. Genesis chapter 5. Don't none of you write Dave and told him I said that, okay? He's listening. No, he's not. He's heard me preach. Trust me, he's not listening. You should just text him. Yeah. Genesis chapter 5, look at verse 1. This is the books of the generations of Adam. Or sorry, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. Notice distinct but equals. And he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Stop. What number kid is Seth? Nope. He's the third. Where's Cain? Where's Abel? Abel's dead. We know that. Where's Cain? Anybody know? It's really gross, but he's living with his sister out somewhere procreating. It's disgusting. But it's true. Do I have your attention now this morning? There we go. But it's true. And they could do that thing because the genetic pool was not defiled at that point, okay? Multiply, fill the earth. But isn't it interesting that when you want to talk about a genealogy that goes on, how come those kids aren't mentioned? One's dead and the other one what? Is a murderer. And he was actually cast out. He was actually turned away. He was actually marked. And so therefore, was Cain the firstborn of Adam? Depends on what you mean. He came first, birth-wise, but he was not the firstborn as far as rights and privileges. Instead, that went to the obedient child, Seth. Notice it says here, Then the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth was 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters, so that all the days of Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Seth gets the privilege. He is the child that is recognized. Why? Because this is all thrusting forward the genealogy that eventually becomes out of the Messiah. So therefore, he is the child that has the rights and the privileges. Cain, being the firstborn in order, forfeited his rights as the firstborn in privilege because of his great sin of murder against his brother. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. Everybody remember Abraham, right? And this, is, this is all the scripture we couldn't go through, but we're going to talk about it. Abraham, yes? Who's his first kid? Ah! Ishmael! Remember when his wife came along with the brilliant idea? I can't have kids, but I got this lady hanging out here. Let's get her pregnant. We'll take the kid. 
What can you say? She's property. What a horrible situation. And Abraham, so okay, you know, mistake. Ishmael's born. Immediately causes a lot of problems. Causing problems to this day. This is the reason why we have the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. It all comes back to Abraham's decision to go, okay, that's it. But who is the child with rights? Isaac, secondborn. Born just as God said he should be. Now, Isaac had two kids, yes? Esau and? Oh, we know Jacob, don't we? He's such a scoundrel. Name means supplanter. Man, that's a fun name. Was Esau the firstborn? In what way? In birth order. But Jacob got what? The rights. Everybody remembers this, right? Jacob is a bowl of chili. They were having a Super Bowl party at Isaac's house. Remember, he comes in, I'm so famished. And Jacob's like, and dramatic, this is going to be easy, right? (laughs) Give me some stew or I'll die. I know. And so what happens? Give me your birthright. Now stop for a second. Rights and privileges. Firstborn with the rights got double the inheritance of the father when they passed away. Man. And he traded it. For stew. I don't care who you are. Jacob is not that good of a cook. It wasn't worth it. And then later on, Jacob is deceitful, dresses himself up like Esau. His mom makes food. She's kind of weird too. Brings it in. Father eats. He's blind. He can't see. Smells. It smells like Esau here. Here's the blessing of the firstborn. Esau comes in later. Dad's going to love this, right? Finds out Jacob stole his blessing. Now, that was wrong, but here's a question. Who had the rights of the firstborn? Jacob. Crazy, isn't it? The Bible's just a fun book. Now, how about this? Move forward to Genesis 48. This is something that doesn't get talked about a lot. Genesis 48. Start at verse 3. This is when Joseph comes before his father Jacob. They've been reunited in Egypt. And look at verse 3. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty, El Shaddai, appeared to me at Luz. Where is Luz? It's Bethel. In the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons, now this is really interesting, because Joseph's two sons were born in Egypt with an Egyptian woman. But look what he says here. But your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. Why does he say that? Because Reuben is his firstborn and Simeon is his secondborn in order. What he's saying is, is Joseph, your two kids are going to be like 
my kids. I am fully adopting them into my family. This is why when you run through a table of the 12 tribes of Israel, you'll often find that Levi, or the Levites, are set aside because they're priests unto God, and you find Joseph's name is missing. Why? Because they've been replaced with Ephraim and Manasseh. Jacob fully adopts them into the family. Now, why in the world might this be significant for us to understand as far as the firstborn are concerned? All right, here's a good one. You ready? Crack, crack those pages. First Corinth, or sorry, First Chronicles. See, I was slipping into it. First Chronicles 5. My tongue wanted to go to the New Testament. First Chronicles 5. And you probably have a heading at the top of chapter 5. It says the genealogy of Reuben. Everybody see something like that? Now, Reuben is the firstborn, which is very interesting. Now, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, was he firstborn in order or rights? Order. Now, watch this. For he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, he slept with one of his father's maidservants. And because of that, even though he was first in order, he forfeited his right, his privilege as the firstborn because of that sin. It says here, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, the son of Jacob, so that he was not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. In other words, he wasn't going to be listed first. Instead, the birthright, the privilege, the blessings of that went to Ephraim and Manasseh. Verse 2, though Judah prevailed over his brothers, because remember, he's the one who said, no, 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 don't kill Joseph. Don't do that. Hold on to him. He stepped up in that place, and we all know who comes from Judah, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah. We got that. It's Jesus. But notice what's interesting. Though Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came the leader. That's interesting. Yet the birthright belongs to Joseph. This is why when you get into passages, you get into chapters like Jeremiah 31, or you're reading through the end of Deuteronomy or something like that, and all of a sudden it's talking about Israel, 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 Israel. And all of a sudden it says, I will, I will love Ephraim. I will bless Ephraim. You say, where did Ephraim come from in this? It's because Ephraim is another word for the Israelites. Why? Because they are his firstborn sons. That's the reason why. They are the children of of privilege. First nation ever created? No. But they are his firstborn sons. With that, turn to Exodus 4. Go and get familiar with our Old Testament today. Exodus 4. Let's look at verse 21. Yahweh said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now, if you want to know more about that, because that creates a lot of controversy, just read the first 15 chapters of Exodus. You'll see it unfold pretty naturally. Verse 22, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, the self-existent one, the creator who needs nothing to be. That's what that name means. He's always eternal. Here's what he says. Israel is my what? My son, my first 
born. Everybody see that? Notice they weren't the first of the nations created by God, but they were the one of which he bestowed rights, privileges, and blessing. It says here, so I said to you, let my soul, oh sorry, my son, forgive me, my writing in here is weird. Let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Because the firstborn also represents strength. So when God comes in after repeated cries that his blessed people, his privileged people, need to be released from their servitude, and Pharaoh says, no, 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 and after that opportunity, God says, fine, you're not going to respond favorably, now I'm going to start hardening your heart in this situation, and you will become an object of my wrath and my judgment. That's how this is going to unfold now. When that takes place. The killing of the firstborn was not just simply God being cruel and malicious. Pharaoh had numerous times to save his kid. Numerous. In fact, the firstborn of Pharaoh would be the heir apparent, wouldn't they? Notice, nothing will stand in the way of God wanting to get his will accomplished in this. So he has given this privilege to Israel, to the Jews, and he is calling them his firstborn, not in order, but in privilege. And in blessing, turn over to chapter 13. Oh yeah, we're doing real good on time. We're great. Don't look at your watch. Exodus 13, 1 and 2. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Sanctify to me, set him apart, every what? Every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both man and beast, it belongs to me. Every firstborn child of the Jewish race and every firstborn animal of anything that was born that was under Jewish control was to be given to God, honored him first. In fact, we know that whenever crops would be planted and there was an initial portion that was taken aside called the, anybody know? First fruits. The first fruits of that harvest was to be given to the Lord. It's his. Number one, to say thank you. And number two, to say we are trusting you and anticipating more because of your blessing. We're honoring you and worshiping you first with what we have. It's the same situation. And that's what makes all this click when you're reading through and thinking, why is she taking her kid to the temple? This is the reason why. Now, skip down in the same chapter and look here in verse 11. Watch this. Now, when Yahweh brings you to the land of the Canaanite, remember, they're going to the promised land, yes? It says here, as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, you shall devote to Yahweh the first offspring of every womb and the first offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to Yahweh. But every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. In other words... You're going to do an exchange here. And there's going to be a sacrifice that takes place. Now watch this. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among your sons, you shall redeem. Now the donkey part, 
I'll be honest with you, I didn't have time to research it all because there's so much firstborn stuff going on. But the fact is, we're never told to sacrifice a donkey in the Old Testament for, this, for the remission of sin or for the atonement of sin. It doesn't happen. Notice the exchange of the lamb needing to take place. And of course, this picture is Christ being the spotless lamb moving forward. But notice, every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Now why? Watch this. And it shall be when your son asks you in a time to come, saying, What is this? Then you shall say to him, With a powerful hand, Yahweh brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. It came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that Yahweh killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to Yahweh the males, the first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons, I what? Redeem them. See, that's the difference here. The idea of the firstborn that was given was not only to honor God and to show a privilege that had come about and they were the first in the order, but now God is setting up a situation where when you give or you dedicate the firstborn to God and you bring in this lamb to buy that child back, now they're not sacrificing the kid, but to buy that child back by the sacrifice of a lamb, what you are showing is, is by great expense we were brought out of Egypt, fellow Jewish person. God has put it forward to give it back. Does that make sense? And what is he doing here? He's starting to paint this whole idea of the slavery that people are in because of sin and that a lamb is given in order to buy those beautiful children, those special firstborn children, back in a situation. Does everybody see that this paints the object of redemption? It is a lesson that was to be repeated time and time again in the family. In fact, it lasted all the way up until Numbers 3, and God made a decision that he was going to draw all the Levites to himself so that this didn't have to take place anymore. He's communicating. He's teaching us a lesson. Moving on. Everybody look at Psalm 89. Everybody remember David? Anybody know what order David was born? You might know. He was last. He was last. He was the runt of the family. In fact, when Samuel came along to do some anointing on God's behalf, he'd rejected Saul. God took the Holy Spirit away from Saul because his king was disobedient, removed it from him, was going to overthrow and tear the kingdom out of his hands and give it to a man after his own heart. And he called Samuel. He said, Samuel, stop looking like a sad sack. Get up. And take your, 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 what's that stuff called? Oil? Oil, yeah. I wanted to say canola oil, but I knew that wasn't right. I must have tonight on the brain. I don't know. And go and anoint a child of Jesse, who I'm going to show you. So all of Jesse's kids come out, and the Lord's letting him know. Nope, 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 nope. Samuel says, Jesse, do you got anybody else? Well, I got David, but he's out in the field. He's taking care of sheep. Killing lions and bears, you know, all the good stuff shepherds do. He said, bring him in here. And when he appeared before Samuel, the Lord told him, this is the guy. Anoint him. He's the new king of Israel. The least. The least in order. The first, chosen by God. Now, I want to show you something very interesting here. Psalm 89, start in verse 19. Once you spoke in vision to your godly ones, or your translation might say, your holy ones. It says, and said, I've given help to the one who is mighty. I've exalted one chosen 
from the people. I have found, who is it? David, my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, with whom my hand will be established. My arm also will strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. But I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him. And in my name, his horn will be exalted. Now, oftentimes a horn is a picture of a kingdom. His his entire rule or the, the sphere of his royalty is going to be lifted up and God's going to make sure that it happens. It says here, verse 25, I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He will cry to me, you are my father, which is interesting because nobody else in the Old Testament calls God father. Only David does it. He will say, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Verse 27, don't miss it. I also shall make him my firstborn. It's not that he is firstborn in order, but notice, the father has the privilege to decide Who is the firstborn? David may have been last in his line. He's first in my book. Why was this? Because he was chosen. Chosen for what? Chosen to go to heaven when he dies? Is that what this is about? No, he was chosen for responsibility. He was chosen for a ministry, for a task. He was chosen for something to execute on behalf of God. It was a path that God had carved out. And who came from David? We know this. Jesus. Aren't you glad David went? Aren't you glad he didn't stay out in the field? I'm too busy right now. I don't know what this crazy prophet guy wants with this bottle of oil. Keep him away from me. No, he came in, and God used him mightily. Greatest king Israel ever had so far. Now, why does all this matter? Hebrews chapter 1. Again, there are many, many, many other passages to detail the importance of the firstborn. And if you were to read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you would have a much better understanding of the nature of the firstborn. Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. Now watch this. Whom he appointed, what? Heir of all things. Now watch this. Because all of this is talking about the great and grand privileges that have been heaped upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about how all this ties to the Romans 8.29 section here in just a minute. So notice, in these last days he's spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his what? Think about that, guys. He is the radiance of his glory. Does everybody see that the author of Hebrews is pushing our eyes upward? Does everybody see this? He's the radiance of his glory. And the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. You know what that means? It means that if God didn't speak, it wouldn't hold together. The world tries to explain that through a term called physics. 
We simply say God spoke. If you want to know what it is that holds all things together, it's God's word. And they all hold together in Christ. You must be a homeschool dad. No. But I can read the word of God and recognize plainly what it says. All things hold together. We'll see another passage like that. So notice here. He upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for sins, that's a cross, right? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Notice it's all inheritance, exaltation, glory, heir, privilege. Does everybody see this? It's a complete uplifting of who Jesus Christ is as the pinnacle of all things. This is what Romans 8.29 is getting at. Notice it says here in verse 5, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Did he ever say that to an angel? Now in all fairness, there are some passages, always pay attention to the context, where angels are talked about as sons of God. But they're in groups. Well, he's a conglomeration or a myriad that is together. It's never an individual. Today you are my son, or this is my son. Today I have begotten you. Don't get messed up with the idea of begotten. The idea is that God has caused to happen or to bring something forth or to put something in place so that it can do what it needs to do. For some reason, this brings it to my mind, so I'm going to share it with you. Anybody ever had to fix their dryer before? You talk about a lesson in discipleship, good Lord. I had to fix my dryer the other day. And man, it was good. But good grief, it was bad. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? The stress of home repair. Clothes piled up. I mean, my kid could not throw up on spit rags quick enough. My wife's like, we're eventually going to have to cut up one of your t-shirts and just wipe his mouth. We're getting that. So there were certain things that had to be put into place. In order to make it happen, I had all these pieces. This looks like this, you know, no duct tape, praise God. But until those pieces were put in place, things were not going to function the way that they were meant to so that we would reach the pinnacle of where we needed to be. It's the exact same thing. Today I have begotten you means that God got involved and orchestrated such things to bring about what needs to happen so that Jesus Christ would be the chief. Hence, he predestined the cross of Christ. Everybody see this? This is how he's orchestrating history, guys. He's going to make sure not just that salvation took place, but glorification takes place as well. Now watch when he pulls this together. You are my son, and that's a title. Today I've begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. When God again brings the firstborn into the world, is this talking about first coming or second coming? 
Second coming, does everybody see amongst all these designations, considering glory, considering the fact that he's an heir, considering the fact that he's exalted, considering by the fact of his word that he's holding all things together, the fact that he's designated with sonship, and then he's also got the label of firstborn, that all this is speaking to his preeminent rights, privileges, and position because all things culminate in him. Does everybody see this? Okay. Colossians 1. Colossians chapter 1, this is where we'll end. Verse 13. For he, that's God, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, the son whom he loves. God has taken us out of darkness and put us into light. Praise God. Verse 14. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In other words, he is the first place at the moment of his incarnation. Creation doesn't get any better than that. Jehovah's Witnesses love this verse because they want to talk about that Jesus is not God. He's a created being just like everybody else. Jehovah's Witnesses don't know how to read. Watch what it says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. How can you be created if all things had to be created by you? You had to obviously pre-exist that event. Jesus Christ is God. So with that being the case, watch how it moves forward. By him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all those are rankings of celestial beings. Notice what it says here. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things, here it is guys, hold together. They cohere. They only have their unity and staying power. In Jesus Christ. Take that to your physics class and see what happens. Verse 18. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning. Watch it, guys. The firstborn from the dead. What is that? He conquered death. What do we call that? Resurrection. Well, didn't he raise Lazarus from the dead? Yes, but didn't Lazarus die again? Yes, he did. Was Lazarus walking through walls at that time? No. Was Lazarus saying, hey, Thomas, come put your hand in my side? Did Jesus have a sense of humor or what? Because you know Thomas was like, that's icky, right? But he wanted to. Put your fingers in the nail prints, which is interesting because notice there was no blood. All the blood had been shed. Come put your hand in my side. See, that's the difference in a resurrected body. He's the firstborn. Firstborn how? Rights, privileges, blessing. Everybody see how this connects together? I love it. He says here, he's also the head of the body of the church, and he himself the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Why? So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Stop. There's the connection between 829 of Romans and the idea of the firstborn. 
In fact, raise your hand if your translation says preeminence. We need to know more about the preeminence of Jesus Christ. The idea is because nothing could be created apart from him, because he has a special pre-existing love relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit, because everything culminates in him, and God has guaranteed it to be so in such an extraordinary fashion that that means that every one of our lives need to come under the headship of him being firstborn as well. Look what it says here, that he himself, will come to have first place in everything. Everybody see that word, everything? That's you and me. Everything. That he would be first place in your life. That he would be supremely exalted in how you make decisions. And how you turn in your taxes. And whether or not you can pick up the bottle and handle it. The whether or not you should be alone with that person. No, his say-so in this matters. Why? Because it doesn't just matter now, it matters forever. God made sure of it. God made sure that as much as this world wants to hate me, God made sure of it as much as the enemy wants to try to crowd my mind, destroy me with negative thoughts, tear me down, rip me to shreds. Christ reigns. And no one can take that away. God will see it through. Remember this dialogue? Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you. You think Peter's the only person that Satan ever talked to Jesus about? No. And this is why when we get biblically convinced, Jesus Christ is already going to be the firstborn of everything. Is he the firstborn in my life? Is he the preeminent one? Is he the one that I'm defaulting to because his blessings and his privileges are better? Guess what? You're already in him. What's the problem? In fact, your life is hidden with him in God. In fact, he's already died two sins and risen from the grave and you died with him two sins and when he raised, you raised and you're alive in him. That means the privileges, blessing, and rights of the firstborn son are also available to you and me. Verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Take that, Jehovah's Witnesses. And through him to reconcile all things to himself. Why? Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. In other words, it doesn't matter if you can see it or not see it. Jesus Christ comes out on top every time. You guys remember when it says every knee will bow? Understand this, guys. That's in hell as well. Those who are lost, who reject the gospel, when they close their eyes to this life and they wake it up into an eternity of suffering, are going to get a break temporarily. And it's going to be a break where their knee hits the ground. And they are going to praise Jesus Christ because there isn't anything else worth praising. Because there's no one else worth singing about. Because there's nothing else worth talking about than the Almighty Son of God, the firstborn. Everybody see that? Let's close with Romans 8. So verse 29. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Why did these Old Testament saints who have this proving track record of God displaying his goodness and seeing them through to the end, what's the reason for that? So that Jesus would be the firstborn amongst many brethren. So that they would have such an influence. So that they would have such a radiance by esteeming Christ as the firstborn as he truly is. That people around them had to respond to the gospel. See what ultimately happens is, is when you default your life in favor of Jesus' preeminence, you find that evangelism happens. It's not that you're scared to share the truth. It's not really it. It's just that we haven't come to the place where we recognize that Jesus Christ is supreme above all things. Because we're not willing to submit our fear to him. And we're not willing to submit our mouths to him or our hearts to him. Or there's something we're holding back. Let's just be, I trust Jesus, I trust you with everything but this. This is special. Jesus, I know you can forgive everything but this. And that's what keeps me from loving you completely, from being obedient, from being totally sold out. And here we live in a world where you can have all the success you want, all the money that you want, all the fame and prestige that you want, if you're willing to pay the price in order to receive it. And yet the greatest thing that you'll ever have in any time period has already been paid for for you. Now here's the thing. We walk out of these doors one of two ways. We're either convinced that that's true or we're in unbelief. Jesus Christ is either the firstborn of God with rights and privileges and blessings and we are living in the light of that fact or we don't think that this is telling us the truth or that it's only true here. It can never be true here. That's not what the track record says. So what do you think? Let's pray. God, I thank you for the word. And even in a subject like the firstborn, maybe something we've never done a study on or considered, and how all of it points to your son, there is not a moment in our lives that we ever face that Jesus Christ is not preeminent over. He is always the firstborn. He is always the one with full rights, privileges, and blessings. And we either live in that light or we walk in darkness. What an amazing life that you've made possible for us to live through him. Father, give us eyes to see. And tender hearts to respond. That the Holy Spirit would continue to mold us into the likeness of your son. So that he would be the firstborn, the preeminent one. Amongst many brethren. We thank you for that message. Amen.